Jason Woods here, and this is the Little Big Med podcast where we're talking little patients but big medicine. This is part two of my discussion with Dr. Nancy Spector on gender equity in medicine. If you haven't given a listen to the first part, that's going to help you understand what we're talking about right now. Head back to the last episode in the feed and catch up. For this episode, I wanted Nancy to specifically address with me mentoring across genders, particularly in light of the fact that I work in a field heavily dominated by women, and I am very interested in teaching and mentoring and education as a primary part of my career. How can someone like me provide appropriate mentorship? Where am I helpful? Where am I potentially hurtful? And where do I need to consider finding additional or alternative mentorship for those that I'm working with? Most of my non-clinical time is spent educating, and the majority of my trainees and mentees are going to be women going forward. Mm -hmm. And I guess I am wondering, knowing the, the scope of the problem, which we just spent the last half an hour discussing, what is my role? How can I help? How can I not be an obstruction? Is there a role for me to play, or do I just need to get out of the way? How do I not abdicate my duty to my mentees and trainees by just saying like, well, listen, I'm a guy, you're a girl, or I'm out? Can we get into that? Mm -hmm. Sure. Well, it sounds like you're an amazing mentor, so don't get out. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I, um, uh, fake it till you make it. Yeah. <laughs> you know, it's interesting because I, in my earlier work, I spent tremendous amounts of time thinking about mentorship, sponsorship, and working with people to design mentoring programs in institutions, also in professional societies. So I've thought quite a bit about mentoring. By the way, I think the, the really great, talented mentors, they're just not enough of them. And what always worries me is a phenomenon called mentor fatigue that uh, several colleagues and I coined at APPD, the Association of Pediatric Program Directors, because when there are really good mentors, they're just so highly sought after. And at some point as a mentor, you know that you cannot really adequately have the bandwidth to take care of everybody in, in the way that you really need to. So I'm a firm believer that men can mentor women very effectively. In fact, several of my most important mentors in my life have been men and continue to be. And that's in part because there aren't that many men, I mean, women in high level leadership roles ahead of me. So absolutely be a mentor, be a great mentor. I think uh, one of the things to consider is that I believe people should have a portfolio of mentors. I don't think that one person should have just one mentor. And the reason for that is each person is so unique that they likely need mentorship in several areas of their career and that generally one person is not going to be able to fulfill all those roles. In fact, you know, if you think back in the day, way back in the day, the role of traditional research mentors and other mentors was really to create almost the mini-me kind of thing. And we are definitely moving away from that. And we want to be able to um, ensure that our mentees get mentored in all aspects of their career. And it's fascinating. You know, medicine is advancing in so many ways. And for some of us, like, I think back to my early days in practice, patient safety was not a topic we talked about. Quality improvement was not anything we talked about. Evidence-based medicine was introduced when I was a fellow. Um, so people who are interested in those fields need to find the right people to help them advance in these very interesting and novel career paths that are, are being created all the time. And that's why I think you need to have a, a broad range of mentors. 
So if I am mentoring somebody who's not like me in any facet, do I need to help them find a mentor who matches them either in gender or culturally? Does that maybe actually worsen this mentor fatigue issue uh, or place some Mm. sort of undue burden on our women faculty? That's a great question, too. I think there are a lot of aspects of mentoring that are very generalizable uh, that we all can do for people. By the way, the way I think about it is that we're all on this spectrum of advising, mentoring, coaching, and sponsoring. And to me, advising is very time-limited, task-oriented. So for instance, for us in medicine, advising a medical student in the pediatrics pathway to get to residency. There is a lot that goes into that experience, but there's not necessarily a longitudinal relationship after the student leaves and goes to their residency program, as opposed to mentoring, which is very much focused on the career and the person and advancing them and the way they would like to. Then there's coaching around specific skills, working on a certain thing. And then there's sponsoring, which is predicated on power of the sponsor and ensuring that the sponsee or protege has the opportunity to go on to do something that they typically wouldn't be able to get to on their own, being appointed to a specific committee or being nominated for a national position. And the sponsor is not only responsible for getting the person to that new position, but ensuring that they're successful, coaching them or helping them be successful, navigate the politics of that particular committee or national thing. So there's such a spectrum and we all flex up and down and we can also provide, you know, smaller bits of things to individuals. If you know Dr. Janet Serwent, who just recently retired from Johns Hopkins, she and I've worked in this space quite a bit. And I talk a lot about um, creating your own mentor portfolio when you're a mentee. But I and I asked her, maybe we should be creating mentor portfolios to see, you know, who are all the people that we work with. And the more I think about it, it's really hard because even the two of us, as we had the conversation, realized that we flex up and down in that advising to sponsorship space. So who do you count as a mentee and who is a person that you've been advising or coaching? Plus, uh, you would really have to have a discussion with the mentee because they may not consider you to be a mentor, even if you consider yourself to be their mentor. <laughs> so, so. I'm sure that that lack of reciprocity sometimes leads to some uh, some difficult interactions. It does, doesn't it? I'm a full proponent of uh, mentee-driven mentoring, the Zerzan. There's a Zerzan paper that articulates that, that the mentoring process really needs to be driven by the mentee because it's not satisfying as a mentor to be running around chasing mentees and getting them to finish their deadlines and doing all that type of thing. But, you know, you, you mentioned the fatigue piece. I worry, by the way, for women and women with intersectionality as well as all underrepresented in medicine in our faculty about uh, fatigue because we as women, but particularly underrepresented minorities are taxed to serve in a lot of roles because of the need for diversity, equity, and inclusion in all kinds of ways in our medical schools, whether it's mentoring, whether it's recruiting, whether it's serving on search committees and all of that type of thing. And women tend to always jump in to do those service things. And that may be challenging in that it takes time away from 
our work that either increases our RVU, so on the clinical end, or our scholarly productivity, which we need for advancement. Um, and then that puts us in a, a tough circle. Can we talk about some specific strategies or things that men and, and all others, but in particular men, can do to improve equity within their faculty, within their trainees, even for people they don't have a specific relationship with? And I'm thinking about the list that, that you guys provided in the, the Google Doc. Yes, for sure. By the way, I think even before individuals, there have to be conversations at the leadership level, at every level of leadership, that equity, diversity, and inclusion are truly important and core values and not something we just say. And so we have to be very thoughtful and, and really have very intentional conversations around that. Because a lot of people do diversity, equity, diversity, inclusion efforts in their little silos and aren't supported. And that is really frustrating and challenging and difficult. And if they're not supported with whatever way and resource way, it can be really, really, really difficult. I think to start on the individual level, we need to have these conversations and we need to ask other people what they need. And we need to ask what they need to advance or to be successful. And by the way, I think about equity, diversity, inclusion in lots and lots of different ways not just underrepresented minorities and women, but people with different scholarly interests. And, you know, the more diverse our community is, the richer it is. But again, working as individuals to ensure that we have a safe work environment, I think is really, really important. I mean, we haven't talked about the harassment issues in the workplace, which are really significant depending on the institution as well as the specialty. And when people don't feel safe, they don't want to necessarily put their toe in the water to move on to do something else. So I think right. that's a really important thing. I can't remember exactly the, the number, but there was a New England Journal of Medicine article last year that reported this astounding number of medical students who report harassment in the workplace every day and how terrible that is, right? That's just terrible. Yeah. And I, um, we don't have to publish this if this is not something you are willing to discuss wider, but I'm thinking about the story that, that you shared when you were here in person about being confronted uh, at a national meeting and told that this issue doesn't exist and sort of feeling like nobody else in the room saw it happening. Yes. I'm happy to share that. Okay. I was a part of a four-person panel at a very large academic meeting and the topic was gender equity. And there were several different specialties represented in the speakers, all women. And the presentations all seemed to go very well. We had a lot of audience questions. And interestingly, most of them were from white men. I thought that was fascinating. Really asking and trying to get to some of the issues we've talked about today about how can they be helpful? How can they help change? And then at the very end, a white man came to ask me a question individually. And we were sitting at the table, all of us. So we were still on the stage sitting at the table. So he was sort of leaning into me to ask these questions. And he basically said to me, I shared the data that is published in the pediatrics paper that we were discussing earlier, Women in Pediatrics, Progress Barriers and Opportunities for Equity, Diversity and Inclusion, that was published in pediatrics. So uh, a very data-driven paper that had gone through peer review and was published, as well as I had shared data in my talk that 
Dr. Reshma Jagsi and her colleagues um, had written about and was published in the New England Journal of Medicine that was calling for term limits and high-level leadership. And that if we didn't have term limits and we didn't do big systemic change, we would not reach equity in high-level leadership positions until the year 2070. Oof. It's astounding. And it's published in the New England Journal of Medicine in November. Right. You're, <laughs> so you're not just making this stuff no, up. No, I wasn't making this up. And he told me he did not believe the data and that it wasn't true and that he knew all the leaders across the country, all the men were thinking about this all the time and that the change was going to occur faster. And he he made several other arguments that I didn't agree with. And I, I said, could we agree to disagree? I asked him several times and he just kept going. So the new speakers for the next session were coming on the stage. So I stood up, went down, and then there was a large group of other people who wanted to talk to me. So I walked over to them and then he pushed his way all the way through and then whispered in my ear some uh, a threat, basically. And nobody else knew it was happening. And what it reminded me of since we're pediatricians, is how bullying can happen in the classroom with the teacher there in the second grade. And this is a group of very, everybody else, there were several of my very close colleagues, um, my colleagues on the stage, my co-facilitators, the leadership of the actual organization that was hosting this. Everybody was there and nobody saw it. So not everybody believes this is is true. And that's, you know, challenging because there are going to be people who are going home into their own environments where they're going to be faced with people not believing that this is true, not supporting change. And that's really terrible. Yeah. And that story makes, um, I don't want this to sound like it's making it about me, but like I, in the same way that I know that I misdiagnoses when I'm clinically working or that I have likely not picked up on the fact that a child is being abused when they are in my ER. Like I am sure that things like this have happened in my presence. And like that makes my insides break to know that it's happening and not have done anything about it. Yeah, I know. Thank you for sharing that. I know as we have these conversations, people then become more and more aware. I know that's happening with the male colleagues I work with. And we all kind of have to help each other as we journey through this. So what other things uh, or strategies can we suggest? You know, things like you've mentioned to me before, when inviting a woman or or somebody with less power than you in general to participate in an opportunity, are are there ways to do that that actually increase their interest or their willingness to agree to it? Yes, that's a great thing to talk about. First of all, when women are asked, it's helpful for you to, when you ask women to take on something or to make a stretch or to do a new challenge, is to share why, and we probably should do this for everybody, why you're thinking about them. What opportunity does this give them? How does it increase their visibility, their skills? How will it help them advance their network? So sharing the reasons why it will be a good thing for them to do, but also why you chose them. What skills, abilities, how can they contribute, why they're going to be a good fit for this is a really helpful thing to do and have a conversation about that. By the way, I think everybody needs to do strategic career planning. So needs to sit down periodically and think about all the things they're doing and what, you know, how are they contributing? What what are the things they need to stretch and move towards as well as what do they need to delegate? So doing that periodically with men and women, but in particular women all the time is really important in the background so that when these opportunities come up, women can say, okay, yes, that fits into my strategic career plan, et cetera. But the other thing I think is if a woman is asked and they say no, 
consider asking another woman. And it goes back to another piece of this, um, really consider asking a woman and don't make an assumption that they will not want to do it. We make so many assumptions about other people and what they will and won't do. Does this dovetail at all with the concept that you've talked about regarding sharing your social capital? And that's not something I've ever really thought about before. Mm -hmm. Yes, yes. So opportunity often comes in unique ways. The most sort of extreme but example that people use all the time is that when men work together and then play golf together. A lot of transaction happens on the golf course. And if somebody is excluded, whether it's another man or women, they are maybe missing opportunities. So there's a lot of networking that occurs when not all the people are at the table. Women often underinvest in the time it takes to do networking in that way because of that, what we talked about earlier, the fact that they often have more responsibilities at home and they need to not only be successful at work, but be successful at home so that they they will then eliminate that opportunity, that time to do the networking. So I think we all have to be very careful and intentional about our networks from two perspectives. One, our own networking and when we invest in networking, but two, when we're networking with others, thinking about who's absent, who's not there. That, may, that makes sense to me and, and is a good reminder to actually think about those opportunities that may not be formal work things, but can lead to opportunities as being a place that also needs inclusion, which is not really before talking with you an idea that had ever popped into my brain. Right. And I think it's even more important to talk about when we're at our meetings, et cetera, is that now in the Me Too Time's Up movement to being very careful for all of us that we're in safe spaces, not necessarily with alcohol, other things, when significant networking occurs so that people feel like they want to participate, et cetera. By the way, the other dynamic with networking is the uh, piece of introversion and extroversion. So introverts have to network in different ways than extroverts often do. I'm an extrovert and I have many introverted mentees. And uh, there's a funny story where I was uh, hosting a visiting professor who was one of my mentees. And then two of my other mentees who are all faculty, they're all mid-level faculty, were standing in the corner talking about how I always torture them by making them <laughs> go, to, go to meetings and then go to all these other events to meet all these people and how exhausting <laughs> it is for them. <laughs> It was this aha moment for me. And I thought, oh, my gosh. So I've learned over time that the networking can occur in different ways. So, for instance, being very strategic at a poster session of you know selecting just one or two people that the mentee needs to meet or me connecting them to the potential person they need to network with or, or that kind of thing. So being very strategic and then not throwing them into big social situations where they're very unhappy. <laughs> right. No, that is also, I, I am, I think, quite clear by the fact that we're doing this and I spend a lot of time talking on microphone. I am very extroverted <laughs> and uh, that being aware of that does not come easily. Right. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think we're nearing sort of the end of what we, we had put on our list to talk about. Is there anything else that we should discuss, especially as it relates to either cross-gender mentoring or things that somebody with some power and authority can do to lift others up? Well, we've covered so many wonderful things. I think one of the things we didn't talk about, which has been an interesting thing for me, is watching the power of social media in amplifying the voice of women. And 
a lot of the colleagues I'm currently working with, I have met through social media over the last two years. And as we talked about earlier, I am so not tech savvy. So (laughs) I've had to um, have others help me sort of make these connections. But as I follow people on social media, it's amazing when a woman has achieved an award or received an award or achieved um, a promotion or has written an article, how people amplify each other's successes through social media is really amazing. There's a woman, Dr. Susan Pitt at the University of Wisconsin in Madison, who is the woman who is responsible for the uh, Look Like a Surgeon campaign that oh yeah yeah so she I I had the great fortune of meeting her a couple weeks ago and uh, she has a whole uh, presentation she might be somebody you want to talk to she has a whole presentation on social media and how that can enhance you professionally and even talks about how you can amplify your work and that can help you ultimately link to academic promotion she saw the New Yorker cover with the four women surgeons, and then immediately took a picture, she was at a national meeting, took a picture with uh, three other colleagues in a similar way. And it's amazing how that just got amplified across the world, actually. So anyway, social media is another, another really interesting tool, I think, that we can think about using in a good way. I know it can be used in a not helpful way. Yeah, I mean, it's a, it's a tool like any other and it can be used to harm, but I, that's a really good point that it, it has a greater amplification potential than many of the other venues that we have. That's right. Nancy, thank you so much for spending your time with me today. I loved this discussion um, and I, I'm really expecting the listeners to as well. Oh, great. Thank you so much. It was a pleasure. And that is going to wrap up this episode. I've been your host, Dr. Jason Woods. Please keep the conversation going by finding me on Twitter at jwoodsmd via email at littlepatientsbigmedicine at gmail.com or at the Little Big Med website, www.littlebigmed.com. Don't forget to head on over to your favorite podcasting platform and leave us a review. It really does help others find the podcast. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.